My default mode is being a little apologetic and uh, a bit of a people pleaser, and, and Phil is as far away from that as possible. He is a cerebral character, by the way. He's, uh, you know, he's a he's a classic scholar. He may dress and talk like folk, but it's a masquerade for a highly intelligent, highly calculating, uh, at times monstrous psychology. But really, underneath all that, a flawed, damaged human being, a child in arrested development. Hello and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside the year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Josh Rothkopf, EW's Senior Movies Editor. I'm joined by my co-host, Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. Hi, Clarissa. Hi, Josh. Today, we have a very special guest. He's best known for smarty pants characters like Doctor Strange, Sherlock Holmes, and scientist Alan Turing. But Benedict Cumberbatch will be joining us to talk about his very different role in Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog in theaters now and on Netflix December 1st. When the film premiered at the Venice Film Fest, Benedict quickly shot to the front of the Best Actor race. And we talk about his process, working with acclaimed director Jane Campion, and how he inhabited his surly, sometimes terrifying cowboy character. But first, let's talk about the category in general, Best Actor. Josh, who are you liking this year? I'm liking lots and lots of candidates. I, I do definitely think that uh, Benedict Cumberbatch has an amazing chance at winning this. Don't you Don't you think he's pretty much one of the front runners? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, he was terrifying. I wouldn't say that this is a warm and cuddly character at all. Um, but he completely inhabited this role, which I was a little surprised by because he's sort of known for playing more kind of cerebral characters. But as he points out in our interview later, this character, Phil Burbank, is pretty cerebral in his own way, but just terrifying in a whole other way. Yeah, he is cerebral, right? He's supposed to have gone to Yale and studied classics. And I, I love the performance. You know what it reminded me of? It, it felt a little like Jack Nicholson, that kind of wolfish, almost mm-hmm. late period Jack Nicholson, where there's a real sense of danger to his performance, like a real coiled sense of explosiveness and yeah. obviously, without giving anything away, there's a lot of buried subtext that I think uh, I think Benedict does an amazing job mining over the course of the film. I also think we should we should be mentioning Will Smith as a definite front runner as well for his performance in King Richard, as mm-hmm. Richard Williams, the coach of a young Venus and Serena Williams. I was pretty knocked out by that movie. I have to say, it is a crowd pleaser and an inspirational sports movie. So it does tick off certain boxes, but I it worked for me. It worked for me in a surprisingly solid way. And I think Will Smith is doing some of the most impressive acting he's done here, maybe since Ali in 2001, mm-hmm. where he's not, he's not doing sentimental. He's not doing gooey. He's obviously not doing a comedy either. This is another one of these uh, internal, um, I, would, I would say, uh, kind of conflicted performances that I think he used to do more of in the beginning of his career. I'm st- I'm one of those people who thinks Six Degrees of Separation is still his best performance. Obviously, Richard Williams and Phil Burbank, who's Benny uh, Cumberbatch's character, they're very different. But I think as actors, both of them made a choice that I think was really interesting in that they stayed in character. Um, oh, even during between, the shoot, the, yeah, right? during yeah. the shoot and between takes, and 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 Benedict talks about this um, a little bit, but 
basically Jane Campion introduced him to the cast before they started filming and said, okay, this is Benedict Cumberbatch. You're going to meet him at the end of the shoot. (laughs) because he's going to be filled this whole time. I thought that was um, a pretty cool choice, but I I bet it wasn't easy on his fellow castmates. Probably pretty painful, but when you do that kind of a method dive, it does does result in Oscars often. Uh, Maybe on the complete opposite side of process, Andrew Garfield, I was shocked to discover in Tick, Tick, Boom that he is a... He is a musical theater geek, or at least plays one really persuasively. I had no idea. Yeah. I really had no idea. Like I never, I, I never saw this side of him. So I was pleasantly surprised when I saw him really belt it out in in this movie. Completely persuasively, right? And he yeah. he plays Jonathan Larson, and Jonathan Larson is the real life creator of Rent, and the movie directed by Lin Manuel Miranda is a sort of homage and a biopic almost about the beginning of his career and his mm-hmm. his struggling to make a dent in musical theater and have a play produced. And Andrew Garfield really kind of socks this one over, right? I mean, he's he's singing. There are a lot of musical numbers. He's bringing the kind of emotion that we've seen him do in movies like The Social Network um, and Never Let Me Go. But he's also just, I mean, if if he's not doing jazz hands in a shot, <laughs> he's expressing it in his eyes because this mm-hmm. is a very live wire, kind of a electrifying performance. And I think that anyone who even remotely loves Broadway or musical theater is going to find something to connect with in Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, The movie, I think, as a whole, isn't perfect. And maybe we can say that Lin-Manuel Miranda, as a director, has a bit of a ways to go in terms of movie craft. But I think his performances are spot on. And Garfield is dynamite in the film. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of surprises, is Joaquin Phoenix. Just because... The last role that he did was obviously Joker. Um, and in Come On, Come On, he sort of plays the complete opposite end of the spectrum um, yeah. in that movie. And I just thought he was so fantastic. Um, it was very understated. It was very natural. I mean, it, I, I, I dare, dare I say cuddly. Um, but I, 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 liked, I liked cuddly Joaquin. And I, and I really loved this movie. And I thought the chemistry that he had with his uh, young co-star, Woody Norman, was fantastic. And I, I just really uh, liked seeing the side of him. Absolutely. And actually, I think that, I mean, just to be brutally honest, I think that Joker was actually kind of a surprise for me. This mm-hmm. performance in Come On, Come On is really what I think of when I think of Joaquin. I think of movies like Two Lovers, and the yards and the way he's mm. able to, the way he's, he has a kind of a, a shaggy vulnerability that I, that I've always loved. I always feel his performances are very approachable. There's a, a sense of self-deprecation and humor in the character he's playing in Come On, Come On, that I found like instantly likable. And I'm glad that the, what I consider to be the real Joaquin is back. You know, um, that was, I, I really do hope he breaks into the bracket. Yeah, me, me too. He's on the bubble. Yeah. So let me yeah. ask you, let's forget about Oscars. Let's forget about front runners for a second. <laughs> if there was a performance that you would like to advocate for, maybe a long shot that doesn't have as much of a chance, who, who would that be? Um, I'm going to go out there and say Simon Rex um, for, in Red Rocket because I, I, you know, obviously knew 
more about him from from uh, from you know date, we always date ourselves on these shows, Josh and uh, and I knew him as a as a VJ um, back in the day, and then so seeing him you know years and years and years later in this role was surprising to me, and I thought he comp- and but then I as soon as I started watching, I completely forgot about that um, because he completely inhabited this role as as this sort of uh, washed up porn star, Motormouth, and you know just hustler and. I thought he was so great. Um, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed the film as a whole, but thought that his performance was the key to the whole thing. And, and you kind of root for him, even through all of the things that he does. And, and I think um, that is a credit to him as an actor. It is a credit to him. And, and the, the conception of, the, of Red Rocket is such a, a dangerously ugly one in, in yes. the sense that, it's, that it is about a, a malignant narcissist who's mm-hmm. everyone who falls into his orbit is, is um, destroyed or, or exploited, that it really needed someone likable, someone who could bring the charm. And I, I think Simon Rex is such a perfect choice in that regard. I mean, it's, he's, he's somebody who has worked on comedies directed by David Zucker, like uh, who, who directed airplane and, and he, and the scary movie movies. And he's, he's somebody who understands that comedy has a way of breaking. If we don't as audience members identify, or at least like the main character. So mm-hmm. I feel like he has these chops that he's bringing to bear. I, I love that choice. Yeah. What about you? Uh, oh, well, if I, if I, if I had to pick a long, long shot, this is a, you know, I, I know I might be on my own here, but I, I really do think that Matt Damon is due an Oscar. Mm-hmm. I, I, I thought he was so incredible in The Martian, and I feel like he's he hasn't really had an opportunity to go deep and dark in a long time. In Tom McCarthy's Stillwater, Matt Damon is playing an Oklahoma working man, a very um, mm-hmm. quiet, rough, brusque character, not a verbal character, who actually has to go to France and protect his daughter who's actually in jail and mount a legal defense on her behalf and get a, get a lawyer to, to assist with that. And so basically the movie is kind of like, you could call it like an ugly American abroad, but ugly American Mm -hmm. isn't quite right. It's more like he's, it's a very rare performance of almost like a, it's like a Trump American, like a red state Mm -hmm. American. Mm -hmm. Or as, or as, um, or as Leah puts it, a MAGA daddy. A MAGA daddy. Like like, uh, yeah, Leah, our, our critic, um, uh, when she got out of Stillwater, uh, described Matt Damon as MAGA daddy, which I thought was very apt. That is apt. And and actually, it's worth stressing that Damon brings a lot of dignity to the character. There's nothing demeaning or or looking down at this character. It's, there's, there's actually a lot of, you know, reserve and finesse that he's bringing to this performance. And by the end of it, we really come to like and appreciate this man, not just as a protector of his daughter, but just as somebody who's reckoning with forces that are really beyond his, beyond his experience. And it, it's, it's about the, the power of fatherhood. It's about the, the, you know, the commitments that we make to family and also about how cultures that are far apart on the globe aren't really that different the mm. more we examine them it really was it's it, it, in its own way it's a really fascinating follow-up to spotlight um and i i wish that performance was having more buzz behind it yeah i mean i'm really glad you brought him up because i really enjoyed him in that movie too and and for for whatever reason the buzz sort of died on on that one and and he's no one's talking about him in this race but I, I really thought he was great. Um, I mean, the choices that he made, I think it's harder 
to sort of communicate what you have to communicate as an actor when your character is so still. Yeah. And, um, and he just communicated so much in his mannerisms, in his silence, in, you know, his choice to wear those, those sunglasses over his cap, you know, like it's, it's just all these little details um, in this performance. And, and so, so I wish people were talking about it more, but I, I agree with you there 100%. Yeah. And I know that Damon will one day be up at that podium. He's got so much uh, talent and he just has to find the right role. Is Will Smith, do you think, do you think he's the one to beat? I feel, I mean, Benedict is up there too. And so is Denzel, which we haven't mentioned yet, who's absolutely fantastic in Macbeth. But I do think Will is the one to beat. I mean, I think his film just sort of has that very kind of broader, wider appeal. Um, and so more people, I think, are going to connect with it. And his performance is really good. I mean, he disappears into this character and it's not, I mean, as you said before, it's a multifaceted character. There's a lot of internal struggle going on. And I think this is his his strongest performance in a long time. Um, and I think people do like him and want to give him this and and, and he's making the rounds. So, so yeah. I would say he's the one to, to beat. I definitely would agree with that. And I feel like there is a certain insider Hollywood vibe to this where people say, oh, he's due. I think people have wanted to give Will Smith an Oscar, but the performances were never quite there. I don't think anyone seeing King Richard would have any doubts about that performance being worthy. It's just that he's got some tough competition. And when you really suss it out in terms of the the voting block uh, of actors in in Ampus, Mm -hmm is the largest voting block. Just in terms of numbers, a lot of people will be seeing King Richard. But I, but I do think that the other ones we've mentioned, especially Joaquin Phoenix and, uh, and Benedict Cumberbatch, they're in films that the entire acting branch is going to get behind. If you're talking mm-hmm. about Come On, Come On and The Power of the Dog, there are multiple potential nominees in those films. And so this really is a horse race this year. Mm-hmm. In, in King Richard... I, uh, w- there are a number of performances that we like and, and not just your, your internet boyfriend. Um, oh my, <laughs> John Byrne, John Bernthal. <laughs> He's really good. Not just because, not just because of the, the, my boyfriend, but um, yeah, he, he, he's, he, I think he completely transforms. I mean, uh, who would have thought the Punisher could ever be Rick Macy? I mean, they, they couldn't physically be, be any more different. And, um, and yeah, he's, he's fantastic in that. And I think especially his scenes between him and Will, um, where they sort of have to <laughs> go head to head with each other and, you know, Will always uh, sort of wins. Um, but I, I think those, those scenes are really fun and electrifying and, and there's just great chemistry all around there. Yeah, all these these best actor potentials that we've named have great sparring scenes. I mean, you could say Benedict Cumberbatch has has amazing scenes with with Kirsten Dunst, mm-hmm. and and the always quietly impressive Jesse Plemons. Oh yeah. And then when you think about Joaquin Phoenix and the acting he's doing with Woody Norman, it's so hard to act across a child actor, yeah. uh, a child performer who's who is. You know, uh, I mean, that almost in a way is kind of like co-directing and, and, and Joaquin is really evincing an amazing performance out of Woody in that film. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of child actors, because this is someone that that um, has been placed in the best actor race. I mean, that's what they're going to campaign for is uh, Jude Hill in Belfast. Right. Um, and I, th- I thought that was a really interesting choice because they're getting because is getting behind them on in that category. Um, and uh, what do you what do you think about that? I think that that's an amazing choice, actually. And and he's, I mean, if, I mean, if you really want to identify who the main character is, 
it's clear that it's it's Jude's character. It's it's mm-hmm. the, the the whole film is a memoir. It's it's written by Kenneth Branagh, the director, and it's it's his boyhood memories of growing up movie mad in Belfast in the late sixties during the Troubles. And so uh, so that I, I forget the name. I think his name is he's called Buddy, right? Yeah, Jude, Buddy. Jude. Mm-hmm. Buddy, yeah. and, and obviously that's a stand-in for Kenneth Branagh, a young Kenneth Branagh. I, I feel like he is, Aristotle would say he's the main character for sure. And, <laughs> uh-huh. even, and so I, I am 100% with this. This is not an example of category fraud. I really do think that Belfast is, um, has, has uh, Belfast does have amazing performances across the board. I was a little more impressed with the performances on the margin it's not yeah. to say I didn't, I didn't like Jude's performance, but there have been some truly astounding um, ch- child performances this year and last year, really, when you think about it. And so it's not quite of that caliber. Um, when, yeah. you think, when you think of performances by young people, I mean, personally, I think of I think of uh, Haley Joe Osment in The Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think about the performances in Jojo Rabbit, which were which were excellent from Thomas and McKenzie. Yeah. And so it really does take someone special to break out of just, did you think that you did that in this case? Um, I mean, I think, I think you, I think <laughs> this, is, this is interesting. I, I much preferred, let's put it this way. I much preferred Woody Norman uh, in Come On, Come On. Um, and it, it's funny, I was talking with Leah about, about this and, and we're like, we should do a, a children's heat index, but that actually sounds wrong. Um, oh but, but there are just, a, there are a lot of, um, there are a lot of um, child actors that I thought were great. Starting with, with Woody, I thought, I thought Jude, Jude did a good job, but I don't know. There was just such, I think, a naturalness to Woody's performance that I thought was was really, I think, it's really impressive for someone that age. And then I learned that he was also British, which, um, which you know, he plays an American in the movie. And so, you know, not that kids can't do accents, but like it never wavered. And he was and he, that's not what I was focused on at all. But I just thought he was he was really good. He reminded me a little bit of Noah Jupe. Who I think is is fantastic and and such a, a great actor and um, he was in, in Honey Bo- Honey Boy and also Ford B Ferrari I mean he had two big roles that year and um, I think he's just a fantastic actor. He is. He's also in a reboot of The Lost Boys. That's coming. <laughs> no way! That is like my favorite movie ever. I, I can't <laughs> believe he's in it. I'm I'm so on board for that. Yeah, me too. That was that was definitely formative. I think in my youth. <laughs> in terms of best actor, let's get back to the race. Are there surprises that you've seen in history um, that that you remember like as favorite? Yeah, well, there was one that was really recent, not last year. I think we were all surprised, um, or maybe you weren't, Josh. I don't know. We did, we never talked about this, but yeah, Chadwick Boseman um, being beat up by um, by Anthony Hopkins um, for the father. I and, definitely think that that yeah. was a surprise, and obviously they they waited till the very end of the broadcast, which just sort of ended uh, awkwardly because right. it was supposed to be this wonderful tribute to an actor that we all love and miss. But I, if I'm being completely honest, I think that was Anthony Hopkins' best performance. Mm-hmm. I think it's better than Silence of the Lambs. I think it's better than Remains of the Day, and it shows an actor at the peak of his powers. Um, even at that advanced age, I think that he's doing dynamite work in that film. I love the father and it wrecked me. So it was the kind of situation where I was like, Oh, what a worthy win it would have been for Anthony Hopkins, but I'm sure he won't win. And then when he did win, 
there were there was almost like no one there to see it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. the the Oscar producer producers even they didn't think that it was going to happen. They thought it was going to end on on the Chadwick win. So, um, so yeah, that 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 was a big surprise. And then another one. Now we're now we're going way back, but um, uh, Roberto Benigni. Right. Uh, yeah, right. I feel like I feel like that was a surprise because I think he was supposed to be like I think it, it was the same year that Tom Hanks was um yep. for, was saving for, for saving Prior Ryan, and so I thought that was a big surprise. It was a very entertaining and fun surprise because I don't know was that when he was walking on the seats or was that when he said he was going to make love to each everybody like yeah yeah virtually every other nominee was was I think had more heat. I mean I remember. Nick Nolte was also up for for that mm. award, and yet here's you know Benini kind of, and you couldn't help but love him when he was just like jumping over seats and and making that speech. That was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, the best actor win that I think I remember most fondly is Adrian Brody in The Piano. Right, uh, I think that was in the 2003 ceremony for films that came out in 2002, and he was he was not really predicted to win. He was running. He was he was in a bracket against Daniel Day Lewis for Gangs of New York, and Daniel Day Lewis always wins. And but 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 it resulted in this incredible win. And that Brody is just so um, magnificent in that film. It's just it's a, it's a hard film, but he was, and and then also it, it that that win I think also brought us one of the most classic Oscar moments I think of the telecast when he got up on stage and I think Halle Berry was presenting the award because she had won the previous year and he gives her this big smooch and it's a dip and everyone remembers that moment um in, 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 classic me too moment that could only happen in a pre me too universe but, but right. I, I that Adrian Brody was a very worthy winner in that in that and I yeah I he has had a little bit of the curse of the Oscar hanging over his career ever since although god I loved seeing him on succession last week that was great okay after the break we will be hearing from Benedict Cumberbatch star of the power of the dog and a definite front runner in this year's best actor race Great to see you, Benedict. Great to see you too. Um, thank you for speaking with us. We are a huge fan of this movie. Um, I, when I first saw it, I was devastated, and I mean that in the best way. Um, it was just such such an amazing uh, film and amazing performance from you. Um, so congratulations. Thank you. Um, so tell me, you know how how you came to to play Phil. I mean, you're known for very sort of cerebral roles. You know, Doctor Strange, um, Alan Turek, um, Sherlock Holmes. I mean, this is very different. Um, what drew you to it? Uh, Jane Campion came to me and we sort of had a discussion, which I thought was a prequel to an audition. And it turned out to kind of be it. I, I, we looked at a lookbook. Um, she talked about how she wanted to centralize that period and that world and bring to life the interior struggle of this very complex man and place him at the center of this drama and honor Thomas Savage's brilliant novel. And I said, this one, it's just, it all sounds wonderful. And there was a bit of a gap in the conversation. I went, so are we doing this? And she went, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to meet my Phil. And uh, I got on the phone. I went, oh my God, I think Jane just offered me the role. And she got on her phone to her producer, Tanya. I said, oh my God, I think I've just offered Benedict the role. So it kind of, it happened at the, the beginning of what turned out to be a very long and brilliant and beautiful and just 
revelatory conversation with an extraordinary filmmaker. You know, I, I kind of came to him through the discovery that was very much in tandem with, with her, actually, in a way that I've never worked with a director before. We really went about trying to honor Thomas, Thomas Savage's extraordinary literary invention based on a real-life character from his family. We just really wanted to make the best out of this. And um, Tanya Sagachin, the producer, and everyone involved, really facilitating, really um, encouraging and supportive of me shifting myself from... I wouldn't. I wouldn't say cerebral characters, but just let's put it this way. My, you know, I, I, my default mode is being a little apologetic and uh, a bit of a people pleaser, and, and Phil is as far away from that as possible. He is a cerebral character, by the way. He's, uh, you know, he's a he's a classic scholar. He may dress and talk like folk, but it's a masquerade for a highly intelligent, highly calculating, uh, at times monstrous psychology. But really, underneath all that, a flawed, damaged human being, a child in arrested development. And then there was just this wonderful synchronicity to it all, uh, I guess. Um, the conversation continued. We had an amazing sort of boot camp uh, in, in New Zealand. But before that, I went on dude camp. She said, look, what do you feel insecure about? What, what are the challenges? And I said, where do I begin, Jane? I mean, you know, I've got to play the banjo. I've got to roll a cigarette with one. I've got to be an expert horse rider. I've done a bit of that. But she went, well, you know, we'll get you music lessons. And I went, that's cool. Um, and I'll try and roll a cigarette by the time we start the film. But... I think I need. I think I need to be inured in this place and this time somehow outside of my imagination. And Montana was offered, you know, this amazing experience I had with Randy and his wife Jen, uh, a really experienced cowboy who's a master horseman, uh, an amazing artisan uh, who makes the most beautiful rope that's uh, revered and and uh, lusted after around the world um, in the traditional form. And he taught me how to treat a hide, cut it, treat it again it, how to straighten it, and then how to stretch it and start making rope, basically, and then use rope and horse ride and steer cattle in two different uh, ranches that he took me to in Montana in the weeks I was there. Amazing, amazing places with amazing men and women who were incredibly eager to help me authenticate the experience of Phil Burbank for the, for the screen. And um, yeah, I learned a lot. I felt Bronco in certain people I met. I felt Phil in certain people I met. I it was, yeah, it was just a really mind-blowing experience and so far away from my lived one that uh, was a good window into what that life would have been like and is like now. And then, you know, during the filming, she just gave me full permission to be him. She, she introduced me to the cast, I mean, to the crew, sorry, as Phil. I said, look, that looks very nice. We meet him at the end of the shoot. This is Phil. We're working with him. Mm -hmm. and that was it. She just, she gave me full permission to. Were you surprised by that? I sort of asked her, I said, look, I want to go the whole way with you, but I think you've got to explain it. She went, oh, you're such a people pleaser. I said, I think I am, and I'm very apologetic. I don't want to make grown men and women suffer an actor, you know, you know uh, forcing them to call um, them by their character name unless it's uh, it's something that's kind of mutually accepted and talked about and agreed at the beginning. Yeah, um, she introduced me as Phil, and that was it. Um, the first day was hard. The internal critic was far louder than the kind of confidence or the voice of Phil, the work we'd done, saying, you can't do this. Who do you think you are masquerading as this embittered, twisted, malignant, but wronged and tortured soul, this, this wronged man who's in such pain? How can you bring all of this masculinity? You, you, know, you don't own it, you know, self-doubt. I mean, a lot of people have that on the first day, but it was very, very loud. Um, but by the end of that day, I'd, I'd owned a bit of it, at least, and then just took the next step and uh, with more and more confidence. Were you the only one that that stayed sort of in your character? 
or did they all did they all do it? Uh, I think everyone did to a degree, you know. And I mean, even previous jobs, I, I've just I've worked with a far shorter runway of building the airplanes. It's kind of taking off, and like I said, we have more prep for this. But even in production and in, in shooting, I've often had this feeling of having to switch it on and off very fast. Whether it's because I'm a producer and have other hats to wear, or just because of the nature of the way the group, the collective, and the director have created the working atmosphere. But when I'm on, I'm that's it. I'm that character. I don't see that as being any different from the methodology I used in this, apart from it being longer, it being more about the entire day. And yeah, I think that's really the difference. It was just, it's the longest I've ever been in character. But, you know, we're in New Zealand. There are all sorts of technical reasons. I wasn't surrounded by America or Americans. So there was that to hold on to the character for, but also how far away, I guess, he, would, he is from me. Um, and just to try and try and give as much possibility to being him as I possibly could, you know, and that just meant slightly different all day approach as opposed to on and off. You mentioned being a um, people pleaser, apologetic. I mean, did you end up, um, I guess, on weekends or after the shoot, uh, apologizing to Cody and Kirsten? I did. I was like, I'm so sorry, I'm body shaming you, I'm torturing you, psychology, psychologically, it's so horrible. And like, it's the job, you know, they're very cool about it. Um, what a job it's an amazing job but yeah there are times you kind of go wow okay it's a heavy thing to do on a day and you kind of want to reconnect with the human beings who you're playing with just to reassure them that it's not you know there's no sort of subsidiary joy to it it's it's a job so yeah i did i reconnected at the weekends and we and we're really good friends we all got it we're all on the same page it's three brilliant brilliant actors for me to be doing this work with and they're incredibly supportive of me and what i needed to get there well, let's get back into your prep because all the stuff that you detailed sounds so fascinating. And um, I wanted to start with that lookbook that you were mentioning that Jane made. Well, what was in it and um, and what, what did you get from it? Sort of unexpectedly sensual pictures of the era, whether it was um, cow hands relaxing by a kind of uh, a stream or a levee or a little lake or whether it was these sort of odd semi-erotic photographs, half in shade, half exposed in light of men posing glimpses of sort of eroticism and then just some really beautiful archival photographs of rodeos and cattle drives and the different sort of performative aspects, uniform, but also celebratory in their clothing and their manner. Yeah, it just got me really excited. I thought what an amazing woman to enjoy this with because she's got such a profound understanding of landscape, uh, of um, sensuality within a frame of the intimacy of a character, but also the alienation within that landscape, uh, as you know, is witnessed in the piano, for example. I thought, what a brilliant, brilliant person to be tackling this subject matter in this milieu. You know, I'm so excited to be in her and Ari's work. And Ari and her had been dialoguing for like a year before we started production. So they were so they were so in control, but also incredibly loose and free to express and adapt and go from a expensive crane shop to going, actually, no, it's a really simple thing in this corner over here. And it's very bold to do that. Mm -hmm. as filmmakers they really had that fluidity about them and it was very easy to be very easy to be in their frame and then there were other moments where it was about them following me and and trusting them and just letting whatever i had us fill in those moments in the private um arena of his life which is a very narrow window but a very profound window into who he really is um in what we call the sacred place and it was just it was wonderful the intimacy of that just me and jane and uh, and ari was uh, 
yeah, I think of really bonding trust and just throwing the work out and letting something flow through and letting her capture it. Yeah. What was it like sort of uh, being, what was the vibe on the set? I mean, two strong women sort of, sort of helming everything. Um, and how does it compare to other uh, experiences you've had with other directors and cinematographers? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's strange. I don't, as a similar experience with Eric and, and, um, and Will Sharpie directed The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne. For me, it's not, it's not really about gender. It's just about sensitivity and appreciation for the balance of needs on a set. You know, um, there are lots of people with lots of questions. Lots of people need lots of time. It's not just about actors. It's not just about the camera. It's everything. It's all of it all together. And uh, Jane's just a superlative director. She's been a champion and shown people that women have every right to be behind the camera just as much as men do and proven it with extraordinary work in her career. But on a day-to-day -day shoot, you know, she just, it's, I don't, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't sing to me as being a different feeling, you know? I mean, maybe I've been lucky and I haven't worked with sort of hyper-masculine directors. It's, there's always been a sensitivity and a kindness and a regard for, for people's needs that, that is, that wouldn't be a counter to the kind of, generous gentleness and command that that Ari and, and Jane had. I wouldn't say, no, gender really doesn't play, you know, there's a, Jane just has an exceptional talent. And I think what she's tackled in her films before, you know, for me, everyone going, oh, you're the first male leader in a Jane Campbell film. How does that feel? I just, I, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how it's, what to compare it to, you know. It's for people outside to judge it objectively, I think. But subjectively, when you're in it, it's just, She's a phenomenal director. She's, she facilitates process. She brings out such raw, direct, and honest performances from her actors. And that's immediately one of the appeals of wanting to work with Jane. And she does it in all sorts of ways, some very peculiar, some very left field, some very direct. Um, you know, she got Jesse and I to waltz to just bring together our bodies and create an intimacy between two brothers who, while pushing and pulling against each other in the drama, have lived a life tied at the hip of codependency and um, the oddity of that for us now, you know, something we have to break through and get to the a sort of uh, feeling of the sensuality of it. It was a great idea. It was sort of bizarre and giggly and fun, but there was also a profound connection that happened in that moment and uh, came out of a, 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 you know, sweet but strange suggestion. Do you know, that's something I would say. Jane's not afraid, and I think some men are, but Jane really isn't afraid of her vulnerability, and that really encourages you to expose yours to be free with that and not to um yeah to realize that we're all taking risks and if someone of jane's capacity and experience can feel fear and share that um that's actually a real call to arms it's a real um to be honest about your vulnerability i mean that's that's kind of where this character has to get to you know i, I just thought your your performance was so fearless thank you did anything scare you about it as you were doing it Oh God, all of it. I mean, I describe my first day nerves, but you know, uh, yeah, all of it. I mean, you know, <laughs> doing a whistle and it just coming out as air and, and no sound, um, fudging a cigarette, any moments, oh, and the banjo, the banjo. I mean, the banjo is the most sort of skilled thing I really had to do in it. And anytime I hit a bum note or just, just it sounded off, uh, it would bring me out, you know, and that makes you feel very vulnerable when you're, when you're trying to do something that requires a lifetime's worth of skill and you've only had a few months. There's nothing like playing a musical instrument to bring you up short, but um yeah and i think you know being being physically and psychologically free in those private moments that that took a bit of a 
a bit of a leap. That was a day that was coming up. It was sort of a build in my head, but actually on the day it was very, very liberating. And it's remarkable what that does, the freedom it gives you um, to be that exposed as a character. It just kind of, it, it loosens everything. Um, and like I said, I had so much support and I was working with someone who felt equally anxious about what she was doing at times and to hold her hand and run into the fire and jump off the cliff together or whatever the stronger metaphor is that that's that's an amazing thing and to have that friendship and that collaboration is gold and that's Jane well thank you so much it was Welcome. a pleasure speaking with you and good luck with everything thank you Thanks for stopping by, Benedict. The Power of the Dog is in theaters now and hits Netflix on December 1st. And that's it for this episode of The Awardist. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at ClarissaNYC1 and Josh Rothkoff. We'll see you next week. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Clarissa Cruz and Josh Rothkoff, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, executive produced by Shana Krokmal, edited and mixed by Sammy Junio and Lauren Klein. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.